Please remain standing and pray with me. Lord, we have heard, read in Scripture this morning that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the power to divide the very innermost parts of our being to separate truth from error, light from darkness. Lord, come now in power and in might and anoint the preaching of your Word. This convicting and compelling word from our Savior this morning. Please, Lord God, in Jesus' name I pray, give me a true word from you to preach to this congregation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we come, all of us, preacher and people together, totally dependent on a work of grace this morning. And grant all of us here who gather in this word, under, in this room under the authority of your word, the ability to receive and then become doers of the word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I can see this is going to be one of those Sundays where I'm challenged by the English language. You'll have to bear with me. Uh, one of the things that all preachers deal with is that at some point, as a preacher, you realize that people aren't listening to what you're saying a lot of the time. Uh, sometimes it's just because they're not paying attention. Uh, I, I know that when I'm listening to preachers, my mind will wander. It'll go somewhere else. But other times, and this happens to me a lot, it is because the inner narrative of the listeners uh, that dominates their hearts and minds is turned up so loud they can't hear what the preacher is saying. The inner narrative is usually something we are particularly sensitive about or perhaps a driving desire or a compelling agenda that motivates us in our daily life. And something like that must have been going on in James and John's minds in the passage that we heard from Mark chapter 10 this morning because just before, just before the passage we heard Chris read this morning, they asked Jesus about positions of, just before they ask about positions of power and authority, here's what Jesus has just been talking about. Are you ready? I mean, literally, this, these are the words right before they ask for these positions of authority. So if you go back to Mark 10, verse 32, <clears throat> you will read, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus uh, was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those that followed were afraid. And taking the twelve, those are the twelve apostles, again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, listen to what Jesus is saying. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And the very next thing out of James and, John's, James and John's mouth is this. Can we sit next to you when you come into your glory? Can we do that? They have not heard a word he said. I'm going to die. I'm going to die a horrible death. Yeah, can we sit next to you in your glory? Why is it? Why didn't they hear him? <clears throat> well, I think that their own expectations, their own inner narratives were turned up so loud that they could not hear a word that Jesus was saying. 
They expected that since they were on the road up to Jerusalem, they are heading up to victory and, in, and to glory. And when they got to Jerusalem, even though Jesus had just now told them, literally, this is the third time He had told them He was going to suffer and die in the holy city, they still thought it was going to be a season of triumph and conquest. James and John wanted power and prestige and position. They wanted the ability to control and to command. The, their, their desire seems to have been to be influential and important. And as J. Oswald Sanders writes in his classic Spiritual Leadership, James and John wanted glory, but not the cup of shame. The crown, but not the cross. The role of master, but not servant. And before we get too hard on James and John, we need to remember that when they heard about the request, the other ten disciples, it says, and the others were indignant. Now that's not because they thought James and John were out of line. Oh, James and John, it's about being servants. You are so wrong. No. They got indignant because James and John got to Jesus with the idea first. That's what made them mad. And that's what they all, every one of them, wanted. This passage, folks, is crucial for us to understand God's view of leadership and authority and power. It's obviously applicable in the church, and we will make that application this morning. But I think these are crucial topics, not just in churches, but it has to do with how we live our day-to-day -day lives. All of us, in some venue of our life, exercises some authority over something or some person or some people. It may be in the home. It may be in, at a school. It may be at work. But we all are in a matrix of authority and submission in our lives. Every one of us live in that, those webs of authority. But here's the problem. Human beings fell into sin by getting this whole authority and hierarchy thing wrong. We fell into sin precisely because we got the whole hierarchy and authority thing wrong. It's wrapped up in the very nature of our fallenness. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, what does the tempter say to our first parents? He says, For God knows when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, at the very beginning of God's creation, of His human, His human enterprise in His creation, at the beginning there was legitimate hierarchy in the universe. God was at the pinnacle of hierarchy. Human beings were under God's authority, and we were God's representatives in the garden. How do you know? Because we're the image of the Creator. He's made us in His image and likeness. So as God's viceroys, we, our role was to superintend and to exercise authority over God's good, very good creation for the purpose of bringing order and beauty to all of the world. That was our role. But the temptation that led us into sin was to remove God from being the ultimate authority and to place ourselves in God's role. You don't need God. Eat this fruit. You'll be independent. You can be God all by yourself. You'll be like God. And ever since that time, we, had, we have all had authority issues. All of us 
have authority issues. But they all boil down to this one point, and here it is. Our authority issue is that God is God, and we are not, and we do not like that arrangement. God is God, and we are not, and we don't like that arrangement. We don't want to say, thy will be done. We want to say, my will be done. You see, our misapprehension and perversion of authority lies very close to the root of our fallen nature. And over the last 18 months, we've seen a steady parade of this in the media. We've seen this vividly displayed in abuses of, of power in the entertainment world, in the political world, in the business world, and saddest of all, in the church. Where it should never happen. Nevertheless, nevertheless, even if we do a cursory reading of Holy Scripture, it reveals that God ordains authority as a good thing. And that God gives it for the proper governance of His creation and of human society. And so Lewis Marcus, writing in Touchstone, reminds us this. Listen, this is really important because I think we miss this combination of factors. Right before giving the account of the foot washing, remember in John, uh, I think it's John chapter 11, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet? Right before the, giving the account of the foot washing, John says the following. Je this is what the Scripture says. Jesus knew that the Father had put all all things under his power. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. How much authority does that give to Jesus? All of it. All of it. Under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, so, he has power. So, therefore, because he has power, what is his next move? It is to conquer Rome by the sword. No. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Now notice, this is continuing the quote, notice that Jesus performs the humble act of washing his disciples' feet from a position of strength and authority. He does not do it because he suddenly realizes that he is the same as everyone else and has no right to claim special authority. See, that's where we go. But because he knows fully and uniquely who he is, had Jesus wanted to announce the tearing down of all distinctions and ranks, this would have been the ideal time for him to do it. Instead, he pointedly reiterates that servants are not greater than their masters. You call me master and Lord, and you're right to do so. And if I, who am your master, do this, how much more should you do it for one another? He pointedly reiterates that servants are not greater than their masters, and messengers are not greater than those who sent them. When Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, when he knew he had all authority, that, listen, this is critical, that is when he takes the basin and towel and poignantly begins to demonstrate servanthood. And we have the hardest time keeping those two realities together. 
this is such a convicting passage. It certainly is for me. So the biblical answer, brothers and sisters, to the abuse of authority is not the rejection of authority. It's not the rejection of hierarchy, but the appropriation of God's ordained model of true authority and leadership. And what does that look like? Well, when James and John made their request for authority, what does Jesus do? When they say, hey, can we sit beside you in your glory? What does he do? He immediately refers to his coming suffering and death. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink that cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? This is a direct reference to his coming passion, his death, his suffering. You see, in the Christian community, brothers and sisters, in the Christian worldview, we cannot separate authority and power from the cross. We, cannot, we can't think about power and authority apart from a man nailed to a stick of wood in total servanthood, in the uttermost pouring out of his life. That is the only context we have from which to understand power and authority. Real authority flows from the cross and always includes self-sacrifice and suffering. Warren Wiersbe once said, we have far too many people who have plenty of medals but no scars. To sit with Jesus in his glory, to share his power, means accepting his cross. In the Christian community, you cannot lead if you will not bleed. You cannot lead if you will not bleed. Very convicting. Very challenging. This means that to effectively lead, to wield power in the Christian community, whether it is a, as a lay leader or as an ordained leader, means that we must die to ourselves, our desires, our agendas, and put the welfare and blessing of those we lead before ourselves. And can I just stop right here and say, Christ Church, you probably do this better than any group of people I've ever been around. I am humbled by your servant heart. I'm humbled by the, and I could name names, but it would just be all of you, basically. I'm humbled by your servant hearts. You do this well, praise God. You probably do it better than me. And God wants you to know that he is honored by that. You see, he sees the cross in your servanthood. We have to die to ourselves, our desires and agendas, and put the needs and the blessings of those we lead before ourselves. Now, in the local church, that certainly means that the pastor, the rector, the guy that's talking to you right now, cannot put personal desires and wishes first. Christ Church has had the blessing of preparing many young people for ordained ministry. We've had a steady stream since we, we started this back in 2008. Uh, at one point in time, I think 20% of Christ Church was either in ministry or preparing to be in ministry. Um, so we have had a steady stream of this. Deacon Chris is only the most recent, recent iteration. 
And the beautiful thing is that every one of these young people in training for ministry understood that to lead a church means embracing a cross. It often means dying, hear me, to some of the comforts and securities that many people take for granted, like being home on Christmas Eve or being home on Christmas morning. Uh, my, my family, I'm 57 years old. I've only been in ministry since the late 1800s. <laughs> and my mom and dad still don't understand that. We don't, why are you, what? Your sisters come home? Look, you are having this holiday because it is a Christian holiday and people have church on Christian holidays and I am a Christian minister, I will be at church. The road goes both ways. 220 will take you here. You can get here. Mom and Dad, if you're listening, I love you. It means dying to controlling much of your time. And this kind of leadership, and we all need to hear this, those of us who are in ordained ministry, affects our spouses too. Because of the one flesh union of man and woman, the ordained person's spouse also shares in that sacrifice and in that cross. And if a person feels called, this please, this is urgently important, if a person feels called to ordain ministry, and their spouse is not willing to share the cross that brings with them, then they're not called to ordain ministry. They need to find another avenue to express God's call on their life rather than in ordained ministry. In our, in our diocese, it is disqualifying for someone who has a spouse who does not share the call for ministry. It is disqualifying for a young man to be ordained a priest in our diocese if his spouse does not share the similar calling. And by the way, dying to oneself in leadership often means doing and saying things that the people that you lead don't like. <laughs> yeah, this is shocking. <laughs> things that will make people not like you and not want to pay you. <laughs> Dying to self means you cannot be motivated by pleasing men. If, you were, if I were still, Paul writes, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the ordained leader, listen, for, them, for an ordained leader to be your servant, they must serve their master. And Sometimes that means doing and saying things that the, those that are being led don't like. And we all think that's great and noble right up until the moment that the pastor leads us somewhere we don't want to go or will not compromise on something we want him to compromise on. Now, the power to sacrifice in any ministry, whether it's lay ministry, whether it's ordained ministry, whether it's the ministry of a teacher or the ministry of a parent, whatever ministries we find ourselves in, the power to do this is the power, and it's only this power. Listen, it is the power that held Jesus to the cross. It is love. That is the power for this kind of servant ministry. It only comes by the coursing love of God in the life of those who lead. 19th century Scottish minister James Stalker wrote this. He said, when I first settled in a church, I discovered, and I'm not doing my Scottish accent, no, no matter how much you beg me, I'm not going to do it. 
When I first settled in a church, I discovered a thing which nobody had told me and which I had not anticipated, but which proved a tremendous aid in doing the work of the ministry. I fell in love with my congregation. I do not know how otherwise to express it. It was as genuine a blossom of the heart as, it, as any which I have ever experienced. It made it easy to do anything for my people. That's where servant hearts come from, from the heart of love. Christ-like authority is not expressed, therefore, in the power to coerce or manipulate. Rather, it is in the power to serve. But that authority, that power to serve, has an even greater purpose in the mystery of salvation. Let me read this whole little bit to you all over again. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this passage, and this is where we get into the deep things of God, in this passage, Jesus doesn't destroy hierarchy or authority. He doesn't eliminate being first. He just redefines what it means to be first. He doesn't eliminate being great. God wants you to be great. But he does redefine what it means to be great. Jesus says that true greatness really does exist. Real power and authority do exist. And in the kingdom, power and authority are expressed, though, through self-giving service. It is displayed by those who are the greatest servants. So what does Jesus do? He takes the pyramid of power and he turns it upside down. God does build hierarchy into his creation because this allows you and me to express God's own character in that those with greater responsibility and power give themselves away sacrificially for the good of those who have less authority and power. And you can't do that if everybody is the same. God loves the differences he's made so that we can all participate in the joy of self-giving service and in the joy of seeing those we serve elevated above ourselves. It is displayed by those who are the greatest servants. The Almighty God Himself serves His own creation through Jesus Christ, and we hear it in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, speaking of Jesus, who, in being, in ver who being in very nature God did not count equality with God, something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, nothing, emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he humbled himself, he humbled himself, and became obedient even unto death, death in the most humiliating way possible, death on a cross. Now, here's the beautiful mystery. You and I all live in a web of relationships of authority and submission. Every one of us has someone to whom we submit and someone or something over which we have authority. Here is the design that our glorious, almighty, humble servant God has revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
You see, now listen, our culture agrees, are you listening? Our culture agrees that leaders should serve those they lead, doesn't it? We, we call uh, people who serve the public welfare, they call, we call them public servants, don't we? Public servants. But that idea has been introduced not by any other source other than Christianity. It has been introduced for over 2,000 years by the Christian faith in the Western world. In the ancient world, listen, in the ancient world and where Christianity has never taken root, the idea is always that people serve their leaders. That my role as a subject of a king is for him to be great and me to be small. I'm always getting him more, giving him more attention. I'm always lifting him up more and more. That's my role. It's not for me to be lifted up. It's not for the king to serve me. It is for me to serve that king, to exalt and glorify that leader. If you need an example, just think of the cult of leadership in North Korea. That's what most leadership looked like until Christianity arrived on the scene. Jesus said it. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. But what God has revealed in Jesus Christ is this. God designs hierarchy and authority for the very purpose of serving and exalting those who are of lower station. So I want you to get that idea in your mind. That the reason God creates hierarchy and why it is good is so that those who are served by those who are in charge are exalted. It is for the exaltation of those who are being served. God introduces hierarchy, authority, submission into his creation for the purpose of exalting every atom of existence to another level of glory through love. That is a big concept. But here's the deal, is that God is all, oh God, please give us the ears to hear this, that the, that the God-given structures of authority and hierarchy in, in God's creation are there not to suppress, not to belittle, not to oppress, but to exalt to an ever higher level of glory everyone below that authority. For instance, parents have authority over their children. When believing parents are exerting their authority in a godly way, they are serving their children. They are denying themselves. They are denied sleep. Parents, give, they give it up. I mean, and this is why I have children when you're young. <laughs> Parents deny themselves sleep and vacations and advancement sometimes, so many things, in order to raise their children to be even more godly, more wise, more beautiful, more loving than their parents were. The hierarchy exists to exalt the one over which authority has been expressed. Do you see that? Every parent rejoices to see a child go beyond them in godliness and in holiness. The, you know, the, the young men who have been trained for ministry here, and yes, under my authority at Christ Church, here's what I want to see from them. I want them to be better, better pastors, and I can say they are. Better leaders better preachers than me. I want them to outshine me in godliness. You know, I, um, I, don't, want to take, I don't want to take up too much of your time this morning. 
But when I was a, when I was a young, young pastor, when I was in my 30s, like in my middle 30s, young men in their middle 30s, that's a very ambitious time. And just typically in a young man's life, you're trying to make a name for yourself. I would have been intimidated and concerned about having anyone else that was better than me at anything around me in leadership if I, ha if I was on a staff. But folks, I'm so glad. I'm so glad right now if I can fade into the background. Of course, I'd like to get, get a stipend, please. But uh, <laughs> keep me on for just a little while longer. But it delights me to think that there are those young people in ministry that I've had some portion of shaping their, their lives uh, that will far exceed anything I've ever done. That just makes me happy now. Jesus does give us a cup to drink today. When we come to the Lord's table, can you drink the cup that I drink? Well, he does give us the cup this morning. It is a cup of servanthood. It is the cup of sacrifice, sacrificing love. But the beautiful thing this morning, brothers and sisters, is that if we come to the Lord's table with faith in the risen Christ and for, with repentance for sin, and we take that cup of blessing, the cup which is the new covenant in his blood, the cup which, which symbolizes the fullest outpouring of his sacrificial love, and if we will receive that, do you know what happens to us? He transforms us. He puts that love inside of me so that by the grace of God and by our faith activating what he is doing objectively in this sacrament, you will become what you eat. You will be filled with the sacrificial love of Christ and empowered to do that at work, with your kids, with other people's kids, with those that you have authority over at school or at home, in your workplace, and you can see God at work glorifying his creation all around you. One last thing. Uh, this works at, I told you, every atom of existence. This, this authority that God gives us in creation goes all the way down the great chain of being. Nobody's heard that phrase since about 1480. I'm, 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 right, I'm talking to you right out of the heart of the Middle Ages here. Uh, but listen, this is what happened. I want you to see this. God has given us a stewardship over this earth. And when a gardener gets down our, on her hands and knees, on her knees, and a symbol, what is the, on your knees? That's a symbol of submission. And puts her hands in the dirt. Dirt that's, some of it's clean, but some of it's really dirty dirt. That's what makes things grow. And gets down in the dirt and plants that seed Look at the beauty that gets exalted. Maybe it's a beautiful tomato plant. Maybe it's a beautiful flower. But by, but by doing, listen, the dominion for which we were created, when we get on our hands and knees in the dirt of God's very good creation and in love plant something, it makes something that was just dirt into something that's beautiful and extraordinary. And that is, a, that is a parable for every level of our lives and existence. If we'll get on our knees and put our hands in the dirt, God will make something beautiful out of that kind of servant leadership. 
can't, I can't wait to see what he's going to do with you. Some of you see it all around you already. I could name names, but it would take a long time. You are seeing God do beautiful things in and through you because you're willing to get on your knees and get in the dirt of God's good, good creation. He is doing something beautiful for you. May it ever be so. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you at this time to stand with me.